0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So good afternoon. My name is Vince Resch, and I'm a professor of the graduate school in the Department of Environmental Science Policy and Management at Berkeley, and I feel like I've been the lifelong chair of the Hitchcock Memorial lecture series, and it's been one of the real joys that I've had of being at, uh, at Berkeley. Our committee, uh, along with the Graduate Council, is pleased to present Dr. Eugenie Scott as this fall speaker in the Charles M. and Martha Hitchcock lecture series. Now, as a condition of the re- request, and, I actually, and we're happy to do this, actually, we want to tell you a little about how this endowment came to Berkeley, and there's more information in the, in the brochure about this because it's really a story that exemplifies the many ways that the campus is linked to the history of California, and especially to the Bay Area. Dr. Charles Hitchcock was a physician in the United States Army that came to California during the Gold Rush. Uh, He opened a thriving practice in San Francisco, and uh, in 1885, he established a professorship at Berkeley as an expression of his long-held interest in education. Uh, His daughter was uh, Lily Hitchcock Coit, who was one of the uh, fascinating characters, and many of you have probably been to Koi Tower to see the beautiful murals that her family was involved in, uh, and a very, very colorful personality. She expanded her father's original gift and uh, made it possible for us to present this series of, of lectures. So uh, over 100 years later, 130 years later, the Hitchcock Fund has been one of the most cherished endowments on the Berkeley campus, recognizing the highest distinction of scholarly thought, achievement, and accomplishment. Thank you to the Lily and Charles Hitchcock. And now let me open with a few words about Dr. Eugenie Scott. Dr. Scott is a renowned anthropologist and science educator. She became the executive director for the National Center of Science Education in 1986. The center, as many of you know, is a nonprofit organization based in Oakland whose stated mission is, quote, to defend the integrity of science education against ideological interference. She said Dr. Scott headed the center for 30 years before retiring in 2014. Now, our speaker received her B.S. and M.S. degree from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and her Ph.D. in Biological Anthropology from the University of Missouri. She later joined the faculty of the University of Kentucky as a professor of physical anthropology. She's taught at the University of Colorado and Cal State University, East, East Bay. At the National Center for Science Education, Dr. Scott's work centered on attempts to teach evolution as simply one of a series of hypotheses about human origins, such as efforts to teach creation science and intelligent design in American public schools. In 2005, she and her staff worked on the side of the plaintiffs in the well-known Kitzmiller versus Dover Area School District. This was the the first case in the US federal courts to directly challenge the teaching of intelligent design in public schools alongside with Darwinian education as an alternative scientific theory. The US District Court for Middle District of Pennsylvania ruled in favor of the plaintiffs that intelligent design was indeed a form of creationism and therefore its teaching violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment of the US Constitution. A prolific author, Dr. Scott's 2004 book, Evolution Versus Creationism, An Introduction, offers an overview of the ongoing public dispute and concise history of the controversy surrounding evolution and creationism. In addition to writing, she has considerable media and press coverage. In 2010, the National Academy of Science awarded Dr. Scott the Public Welfare Medal for extraordinary use of science for the public good. Now, some of you may know this this analogy that's been applied uh, to Dr. Scott. Uh, If you remember back in Darwin's time, they referred to Huxley as Darwin's bulldog. They've also referred to Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, as Darwin's greyhound, which is, uh, Jeannie once said, that's not necessarily a compliment if you know greyhounds. But she's been described in beautiful, eloquent terms as Darwin's golden retriever. <laughs> so in her lecture today, Dr. Scott asks, why do people reject good science? Now, recent research has highlighted the importance of ideology in shaping what scientific conclusions are that are considered reliable and acceptable. And, of course, this research is quite relevant to the evolution and climate change wars and to other questions involving the rejection of empirical scientific evidence. Uh, I've been a fan of Dr. Scott's for years, and it's really a pleasure. So join me in welcoming her to Berkeley.
1: Thank you very much. so much.
2: Thank you, Vince. Thank you very much. You know, actually, actually, greyhounds are pretty cool dogs when you come right down to it. It's golden retrievers that are... I mean, they're really nice dogs and everything, but they're kind of dumb. But they just want to get along with everybody. So you know, we'll, we'll see if we'll see if you pick up on any of that in this talk. But as thank you very much, Vincent. As Dr. Resch said, I've spent most of my professional life at and the National Center for Science Education. So I have been dealing a lot with people who don't agree with scientists, (laughs) even on topics like evolution, which is foundational to entire academic disciplines. So for a long time, I've been interested in this question of why do people reject good science? Now, there are a lot of things that people get wrong, okay? Uh, You know that Woody Allen joke about, I just finished the Evelyn... Uh, Woods Reading Dynamics course. In four hours, I read War and Peace. It's about Russia. (laughs) People believe that eyewitness accounts are really highly reliable, and and one of my favorites, we only use 10% of our brain. Like, 90% of our brain is just sitting there, I don't know what to do. But we, you know, there are a lot of things that we're wrong about, but stuff like this tends to be changeable with more information. If you explain to somebody why I only use 5% or 10% of my brain really is inaccurate, most people will say, oh, okay, that's fine. But then there's a whole bunch of stuff that people are wrong about which seem not to be very susceptible to changing with new information. The 9-11 truthers, the creationists, climate change deniers, aficionados of the moon landing being a hoax... Providing more accurate information doesn't seem to change their opinions or make them alter their erroneous views. So there seem to be some erroneous ideas that people change their minds about and others that, uh, at, uh, about which they are quite knowledge resistant. Now we as individuals in a society have to make decisions that require accurate information. Sometimes this information comes from science. If if my baby gets a measles uh, mumps rubella vaccination will my child get autism? Are GMO foods safe to eat, etc. Um I'll mostly be talking about two fields about which in science about which I have most expertise, which is evolution and climate science. But there are a lot of things that people get wrong that people need Um, scientific and and other factual information to make good decisions. Um, So let me just set the stage by taking a look at those two fields of evolution and climate change and how the public looks at them. Now, anti-evolutionism in the United States has had a depressingly consistent uh, uh, past. The top line is Gallup's question about human beings uh, were created in their Present form about 10,000 years ago, uh, traditionally about 40, mid to high 40 percent of Americans have answered yes to that question. Uh, in the last couple of years, interestingly enough, it's been declining, and in 2017, it was below 40 percent for the first time. The middle line is Gallup's question that humans evolved, but God guided this process, a point of view in the religious circles known as theistic evolution. Uh, and this question is usually answered by about mid 30%, uh, 35, 37% of Americans, um, uh, increasing recently uh, to the high 30s, uh, which is kind of interesting because the young earth creationists are sort of going down at the time the theistic evolutionists are going up. That's a correlation. We don't know if there's any causation in there. The bottom line is Gallup's question about humans evolved, but Sorry, humans evolved, but God was not evolved, involved in this issue. Now, this question has been answered by Americans in roughly the low teens, uh, even 8, 9, uh, 12, 13%. It's been on a rise during the last decade, and interestingly enough, in 2017 it was the highest that it's ever been recorded, 19%. In any regard, whatever the percentages are, Uh, Americans have a much lower incidence of acceptance of evolution than people in literally any other developed country in the world. Climate change is a little better. In a 2017 study, Published by the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, showed, this is the black line there, over half of registered voters accept that global warming is caused mostly by human activities. Now, of course, if you go to most of Europe and most of Asia, the percentages are like 60, 70, 80%. But the fact that we're over half is progress, because this is the highest it's been for a long time. The blue lines show that Democrats, both liberal Democrats and moderate conservative ones, had a higher acceptance rate than Republicans and the uh, red lines show that Republicans um, in general are less uh, favorable to accepting anthropogenic uh, climate change. When we compare attitudes of the public to scientists, we find quite a large gap in several science issues. I want to use as my starting example the top line of this chart. Is it safe to eat genetically modified foods? 88% of scientists say yes, 37% of the general public. That's a 51 point gap between the uh, acceptance of this principle from scientists versus that of the general population. There are 37 and 33% point gaps between scientists and the public on climate change and human evolution respectively. So, how come? Well, maybe knowledge resistors are just stupid. Uh, Maybe the 9-11 truthers and creationists and those who reject anthropogenic climate change are just dumb. Um, I suspect this is highly unlikely. Uh, Nobody's out there giving IQ tests to uh, 9-11 truthers or anybody else. But uh, from what we've seen and uh, talking to these people, I would, my hypothesis would be, and I think it could be corroborated, that there's the same range of normal uh, intelligence um, amongst uh, deniers of these scientific views as well as anybody else. I don't think stupidity is really the answer. Maybe they hate science. Ah, well, this is something that we can actually look at. So how many of you think Americans are anti-science? Uh, and I won't call on you, so it's safe to raise your hand. It's okay. So are. see, a lot of you raised your hand. Oh, she's not going to call on me. It's okay. So quite a few of you did raise your hand. Well, let's take a look and see what the data say. Well, if Americans are anti-science, they're keeping it a secret because pretty much every survey for the last 30 years that I've seen, and believe me, I obsess about things like this, shows that Americans are very positive about science. In this recent Pew Research Center data, a majority of Americans believe science has a mostly positive effect on society, 67%. That's a really large number. Only 4% of our fellow citizens feel that science has a mostly negative effect. And there's other indicators as well. A somewhat earlier Pew study showed that Americans find science beneficial. 79% think science has made life easier, and in terms of healthcare, food supply, and the environment, very high percentages of Americans also think that science has had a positive effect. If Americans were anti-science, they would not be likely to trust scientists to be reliable sources of information on important issues. Uh, The health risks of the MMR virus, or, sorry, vaccine. We know the health risks of the MMR, uh, uh, more viruses than one. Uh, The causes of climate change, the health risks and benefits of eating GMOs. Notice that Americans are more likely to go to scientists for information on these questions that they might have than to other uh, people who might have expertise in this uh, issue. You might notice where elected officials are. (laughs) Interestingly enough. In this 2014 Harris poll on occupations and prestige, scientists are right up there with doctors, firemen, and the military as high-prestige occupations. And in what I think was a most interesting question, would you want your kid to think about a career in these fields? When people are asked this question, scientists again are right up there with doctors and engineers. Uh, By the way, politicians are really low on this list. And there's lots and lots of polls showing these similarly uh, positive responses to science. So how many of you think that Americans are anti-science? There are still some knowledge-resistant people out here. <laughs> this is what we're... All right. <clears throat> My hypothesis on this is that Americans really like science. I mean, we're very positive about science. All the survey research data shows it. Grandma got a new hip. She's bowling again. People, we really, really like science. But we just don't like that science. We just don't like this science. I think we pick and choose on the sciences that we don't like. Uh, But in general, science has got good press, which I think is very positive for those of us who are interested in science. Denying climate change or evolution is not the same as denying science. Maybe people who reject the scientific consensus on issues are just ignorant, noting, of course, that there is a difference between stupidity and ignorance. One is curable. This would be very good to know because if the reason why people reject scientific views, which are well-founded in science, is uh, because they don't know enough about it, if more information could change their mind, this would be a really good solution to this problem. If it's just ignorance, if we provide them with more information, they'll change their opinions, this is great. It is clear that this is the opinion of about 89% of the people who are on the internet. It's a joke. <laughs> it's actually, what if you carry it, it says, aren't you coming to bed? I can't, this is important. What? Someone is wrong on the internet. When I first started dealing with the creationism and evolution issue, I really thought that if I could only explain the science really, really clearly, come up with gripping examples, um, uh, communicate my excitement and enthusiasm for this science, that people would say, yeah, okay, you can teach this stuff to my kid. Didn't work out that way. I learned fairly early in my career uh, at NCSE that you can't just shovel more science onto this topic and expect it to have to make any difference. Uh, People, someone is wrong on the internet, people will always come up with reasons why they can't accept your information. This is called the knowledge deficit model. And it has to do with the the idea that, you know, uh, knowledge resistance is the function of ignorance. Cure the ignorance, the knowledge resistance will go away. Unfortunately, reality is a lot more complex than that. Dan Kahan and his colleagues at Yale Uh, surveyed a group of Americans, they asked them about their attitudes toward climate change, and they also collected information on their uh, general scientific knowledge and mathematical ability. And the hypothesis is that if, if ignorance is the explanation for knowledge resistance, then we'd expect that people who know more science would be more likely to agree with scientists. And what they found was that the more knowledgeable people tended to be less concerned with climate change, which is not what the knowledge deficit uh, model would predict. And there's a lot of other research in the same vein. So what can explain knowledge resistance? Well, apparently it is not stupidity, ignorance, or hatred of science. So what is it? Well, to summarize an awful lot of literature uh, in the psychology of belief uh, area there are a lot of concepts which overlap quite a bit. Cultural cognition, motivated cognition, confirmation bias, etc. For my purposes today, all of these concepts refer in some way to viewing factual information through a filter. And the filter is a values, an ideology, or a group identification filter. Some or all of the above. We social primates share values and ideology with members of our group. It's part of the way we identify as members of a group. It's part of the way that groups uh, enculturate the um, uh, younger members of the group. Values and ideology are extremely important. And some things about which we are wrong, we can change our mind about fairly easily, Things about which we are wrong, which impinge upon our ideology, our values, or our group identification, are very resistant to change in, in the form of, of, of a variety of these concepts. And let me talk a little bit about that, because I find it a very a very interesting problem. Before I do, though, let me do something that might seem rather odd. I'm going to put in a good word for ideology, okay? Okay. Um, in the cartoon, science is obviously banning ideology from the laboratory. Science is good. That means ideology has to be bad. And I don't think about ideology as bad. When I talk about people having ideologies or knowledge resistance as a function of ideology, I'm not, I'm not dissing uh, I, them because they are expressing ideological views. I look at ideology, the word ideology, the same way that I look at the word operation, Okay, an appendectomy and a lobotomy are both operations. Okay, I've had one. You know, I may, <laughs> I think I'll just let, let that float. Let let you draw your own conclusions. But everything is context. Uh, there's a difference in context between an appendectomy and an, uh, and a lobotomy, obviously. But they're both operations, right? Similarly with ideologies. There are ideologies that are destructive and injurious. There are ideologies that are beneficial and fulfilling. Ideologies affect how we shape our lives, and every single person in this room is a whole matrix or bundle of ideologies. One can be a a feminist, humanist, environmentalist. I know somebody like that. Uh, Feminism, humanism, and environmentalism are isms, they are ideologies. If you uh, embrace the ideology of feminism, then you hold certain views about the relationships of males and females, uh, the equality of males and females in different areas, et cetera, et cetera. Ideologies shape how we run our lives and they are extremely important and they are not necessarily negative. Context is everything. But again we you know we social primates live in groups and our ideologies help make us part of a group our values it's a very human thing to have ideologies now where problems arise is where an ideological position prohib- prevents us from looking dispassionately if you will at empirical evidence facts and logic Uh, It's a very difficult thing for we human beings to do, to set aside our values and our ideology, to look carefully at evidence that may cause problems for those ideologies and values. It's a very human thing. It's a very difficult thing. Nobody does it all the time, and hardly anybody does it really well. So let's take a look at ideologies, values, and identifications, and how they can affect knowledge resistance. Working with some ideas from the anthropologist Mary Douglas, Dan Kahan and his colleagues suggested that people can be placed along two axes depending on their values. There's an individualist communitarian axis and a cross-cutting hierarchist egalitarian axis. Now, everybody has tendencies on one or the other, and you can go to the internet and you can find a quiz that'll put you in one of these quadrants. and so you know everybody has some tendencies of these, but people would be placed differently. Republicans are more likely to be hierarchical and individualistic. Democrats are more likely to be egalitarian and communitarian. Libertarians are egalitarian individualists. And I didn't know that their symbol was a porcupine either. Um, we we really don't have a political position that occupies that that northeast quadrant there. But in my opinion, evangelical Christians are hierarchical communitarians, which obviously is not parallel to the political groups that I'm using as my other examples. Now these axes are associated with differing opinions about social issues. Hierarchical individualists don't worry very much about climate change, nanotechnology, or guns. They're green in this uh, diagram, but they are very concerned about gun control. That's a red item for them. Egalitarian communitarians worry a lot about climate change, nanotech, and guns, but they're rather positive about gun control. And differences occur between the other two diagonals as well. An individualist egalitarian in the lower left there who feels strongly about involuntary mental health treatment is going to be resistant to information that promotes that practice. Such information is going to threaten you if you have libertarian values or potentially cause a rift with other libertarians with your tribe. So a lot of information is going to be ignored or discounted if a position placed on any of these uh, uh, red issues, shall we say, uh, is presented. Kahan and colleagues surveyed people about how much risk they associate with global warming, which is the green line on this diagram, how much risk they associate with gun ownership, which is the red line, marijuana legalization, the blue line, and vaccination, which is the black line. And they found very strong correlations with political affiliation. Liberals were very concerned about global warming and gun ownership, the green and the red lines. They're high on that chart. They weren't really fussy at all about marijuana legalization, and uh, conservative, strong Republicans were precisely the opposite. Interestingly enough, childhood vaccinations didn't show any kind of political division. I think this is partly because, uh, contrary to a lot of the uh, panic that we sometimes feel about the anti-vaccination movement, it's actually a very tiny percentage of Americans who don't vaccinate their kids. Americans vaccinate their kids at the rate of, like, 94, 95, 96%, it's a very high percentage. So maybe there just wasn't enough variance in the data to really show up in terms of, of political orientation. So given that people hold values related to an issue, can you change opinions with more information? How does, how does the knowledge deficit argument stand out? Well, the literature on this topic is provides some rather contradictory conclusions. Uh, and by the way, don't think Dan Kahan is the only one doing any research on this topic, because he's not. It's just that his examples are usually pretty good, and I like his, his uh, graphics. So for a public lecture, I, I tend to lean more on his examples. But there are plenty of people in addition to Dan doing this work. Uh, but this study is really one of my favorites, and, and let me ex- share it with you. Now... Kahan and his colleagues uh, tested a sample, again, these are adult Americans, on their numeracy. And he found that uh, there was a range, some people were really good at numbers and some people were really, really terrible at numbers, Uh, low to high numeracy abilities. They also collected information on political leanings and then they gave them a little puzzle to solve. Subjects were asked to evaluate a study of the efficacy of skin cream for treating rashes. They gave them a two by two table. Um, some people uh, got the skin cream, some didn't. In some cases, the skin cream uh, helped with the rash. In some cases, it didn't. So standard two-by-two type of thing. And then they, uh, and then they asked them to evaluate. You know, does the skin cream work? So it's a pretty simple, you know, can you understand scientific data? And for part of the sample, the correct answer was that the rash got worse. For another part of the sample, the rash got better. Okay, So basically, they they kept the numbers in the cells the same. So the numeracy is kind of controlled for, as it were. Um, But in some cases, the rash got better. In some cases, the rash got worse. They basically just switched the column headings. And, you know, um, that was fine. And then they changed it up a bit and asked a question about whether gun control has a positive or a negative effect on crime. In other words, if you ban concealed weapons, does this increase or decrease crime? And, again, as with the hand cream example, they jiggered the column headings so that, in some cases, um, uh, gun control reduced crime, in some cases, gun control increased time. And, um, in general, what they found is that <laughs> most everybody stank (laughs) either for the rash or the crime example nobody was really very good at this it was really only when you got into the higher levels of numeracy Uh, on the uh, x-axis they're the ones farthest to the right only the people who got like eight seven eight nine and their numeracy scores those were the only ones who kind of did well on either the rash example or the uh, 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 gun control example but then they took a little bit, then, then, then they took a closer look, so to speak, and factored in political identification. The top, the, the this, this figure you're looking at now is the skin cream example. And recall that rash increases or decreases are both correct answers depending on the column headings. And uh, here the results are separated by party affiliation, with blue being Democrat and red being um, Republican. And, the you know, in general, it was kind of like, you know, the general population results. The red and the blue lines are pretty similar. Uh, nobody did terribly well, but whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you kind of do well or poorly on the uh, skin cream example. But things were very different when they asked them about gun control. Uh, Democrats largely believed that crime decreases when guns are restricted, and when that's the correct answer, they're more likely to get it right. And when crime increases is the right answer, they're more likely to get it wrong because it fits with their ideology. Similarly, Republicans are more likely to get it correct that crime increases when you restrict guns, and less likely to get it correct when the right answer is crime decreases, which is ideologically less attractive. And notice that having greater numeracy doesn't make you more likely to get it right if the correct answer doesn't fit with your ideology. Another way of looking at the knowledge deficit model and ideology is to provide um, uh, incorrect information, uh, correct the incorrect information, and then see if people change their mind. And there have been a number of studies. This, Nihan and Riefler's, is a very good example. The Nihan and Riefler studies all show around about the same thing, that when people with strong opinions are presented with articles that correct the misinformation, they don't always change their views. Sometimes they double down on their original position. This is called the backfire effect. And an example of this in this study, um, the respondents were given a fake news article uh, in which uh, uh, President George W. Bush uh, claimed that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Then they were given an article that corrected that misinformation, and then they were asked again... Do you think Iraq had weapons of mass destruction? People who had reported themselves as strongly conservative were even more likely to believe that Iraq had WMDs after reading the correction. In another study, uh, they quoted President Bush as claiming that tax cuts improved government revenue, gave a correction from a Republican uh, economic source, by the way, that no, tax cuts don't improve revenue, and then asked people whether they agreed. Again, the most strongly conservative were the ones who doubled down the backfire effect. Now, the backfire effect doesn't always happen. Not everybody doubles down mostly it occurs among people who are most polarized. In another study by Nyhan and Riefler, they uh, were looking at vac- anti- and pro-vaccination groups, and they uh, surveyed a group of people and were able to divide them into pro- and anti-vaccination. Um, they gave them an article debunking whether uh, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine uh, produces autism in children, and overall, by and large, the autism correction story did decrease the number of people who believed that MMR uh, vaccine causes uh, autism, but it did not work for that subset of parents who described themselves with the strongest anti-vaccination views. Uh, They doubled down. That's where the backfire effect happened. The, the uh, investigators think that it might have been related to a conspiracist kind of ideology that, that accompanied their strong anti-vax views. But the VACPIRE effect was studied in a series of tests on a very large group of people, like over 10,000 subjects, uh, by Woods and Porter in 2016. They collected information on people's political orientation Provided them with incorrect information, corrected the information, and then tested them to see if they accepted the uh, correction, etc. Same sort of model as Nyan and Riefler. They found no backfire effect whatsoever. For example, they took statements from Clinton and uh, Obama that were not true, uh, asked liberals, moderates, and uh, conservatives how much they agreed with them. Uh, liberals are on the left of the charge. Conservatives are on the right that 's the blue and the red circles there and take a look at that upper row um, in the first cell. Obama claimed that gender wage gap was caused entirely by discrimination predictably, liberals agreed more with the statement than conservatives did, and moderates were in the middle that 's why the line runs as you see it with liberals having the higher scores um, then when they corrected this misinformation. Uh, indeed, uh, the corrected line shows that uh, fewer people accepted that as correct, but the shape of the line was the same. Now, liber- more liberals still thought that Obama was right. The liberals were more resistant to accepting the correction than conservatives were. And the same was true for the other uh, questions. There was no backfire effect. Um, similarly with uh, conservatives, Senator Rubio, I had claimed that defense spending was lower under Obama than Bush, which was not true. Uh, Again, conservatives were more likely to believe that, so the slant of the line shows a higher proportion of conservatives accepting that statement. When they corrected the statement, in general, fewer people accepted it, whether liberal or conservative, and you notice that the line is lower. But the shape is still the same. So there's still something going on, but there's no real backfire effect. So the backfire effect is, um, is curious. There are lots of studies like these showing that values, ideology, and group identification tend to trump empirical evidence. My personal experience dealing with creationism and climate change underscores these conclusions. Identification as a conservative Christian and the ideology of biblical literalism are major barriers to the acceptance of evolution among conservative Christians. Similarly... The values of personal responsibility, small government, the importance of capitalism, and at least recently, identification as a Republican, are prime inhibitors of the acceptance of anthropogenic climate change for political conservatives. Now, I want to go into this a little bit more because a lot of times when I talk to people about, uh, oh, at NCSE, you know, we look at both evolution and climate change, people say, "I wish those people would stop." Well, actually, it's not the same people, so let me show you why. First, let's clear up some confusion about political and religious conservatism. Conservative Christians hold certain religious views. The inerrancy of the Bible and a personal relationship with Jesus are the most important. They are called evangelicals, fundamentalists, charismatics, there's many other terms. They call themselves conservative Christians, so that's the term that I use. Political conservatives express confidence in capitalism as an economic system. They are opposed to taxation. They believe in minimal government. Uh, Individual and personal liberty are elevated to a very high state. And this is combined with the American view that everyone can succeed based upon their own efforts. The intersection of conservative Christianity and political conservatism is referred to as the religious right. Now, not all religiously conservative Christians are political conservatives. Social gospel Christians are in the forefront of many movements in um, worker rights, um, taking care of the poor and disadvantaged. Similarly, not all political conservatives are religiously conservative. Uh, they don't belong to denominations that are biblically literalist, or they just may not be especially interested in religion. Now this diagram is relevant to both of the controversies I'm talking today. Uh, when we overlay anti-evolutionism on this diagram, it's clear that you know the religious right is is steadfastly anti evolutionary. Yep, we know that. And most of the anti evolutionists are religiously conservative. Um, when a political conservative is anti-evolutionist. It's because he's simultaneously a religious conservative. Religious conservatism is what's really driving anti-evolutionism, not political conservatism. If you know somebody is an anti-evolutionist, you've got a pretty good predictor that that person is a conservative Christian. It is a much worse, it's much weaker prediction that that person is politically conservative as well. Similarly, if we overlay anti-climate change, uh, climate change contrarianism, if I say anti-climate change, that's fairly confusing because we're all anti-climate change, but you understand that I'm talking about people who reject the scientific consensus on climate change, but that takes so much longer to say. But, so listen to what I mean, not what I say. Okay? <laughs> you all have children, you know how that works. Um, but with climate change the main engine is political conservatism, not religious conservatism. As a matter of fact, there's a substantial group of green Christians who are uh, major, major tree-huggers. They favor creation, care, religion, uh, theological views, stewardship theology, uh, rather than dominion theology, and they are outside of the anti-climate change movement. Similarly, there has been a long tradition of environmentalism within mainstream republicanism, and not all political conservatives are anti-climate change. So ideologically, climate change contrarians are politically conservative rather than religiously conservative per se. If you know somebody is anti-climate change, that's a pretty good marker that that person is politically conservative. It's a less good marker that that person is religiously conservative. Now, there's nothing quite so satisfying for any of us in the sciences than discovering that there's actually scientific validation to your prejudices. Uh, and my colleague, Josh Rosenau, uh, got, was very kindly given data from the Pew organization, and he ran some of his own analyses, looking at what are the predictors of uh, acceptance or rejection of human evolution, acceptance or rejection of global warming. Now, this is a terrible-looking diagram, and it just looks like a pile of spaghetti, but it's not that bad. Let me just show you how it's, it's actually a pretty informative kind of thing. Now, the red lines are negative associations, negative correlations. Um, the black lines are positive associations and the size of the coefficient there is a reflection of how strong that relationship is the dotted lines are really weak associations clearly and the stronger the thicker the line the stronger the association okay so education is a fairly strong uh, is fairly strongly associated positively with acceptance of human evolution in other words the more educated you are the more likely you are to accept evolution Interestingly enough, it's not associated with global warming, acceptance of global warming. The more education you are, the more educated you are, uh, that doesn't mean you're more likely to accept global warming. The strongest negative association with evolution is born-again theology. In other words, if you're born again, you're less likely to accept evolution. And church attendance is also a very strong negative correlation. The more frequently you attend church, the less likely you are to accept human evolution as well. And of course, there's a very strong correlation between born-again theology and church attendance, as one would expect. Now there's a fairly strong negative association between born-again theology and political ideology by which in the nature of the analysis that he was able to use, um, this negative, (laughs) and it's not a value judgment, negative refers to republicanism. So the born-again theology is associated more with being a republican, that is why it's a negative, but it's a fairly strong correlation there. And the strongest predictor of of anti-global warming is political ideology. In other words, if you are a Democrat, you're more likely to accept global warming. Interestingly enough, global warming and human evolution are not correlated. So acceptance of evolution doesn't tell you very much about acceptance of global warming and vice versa which is exactly what my impressions were. It's so nice to have it validated, like I said. So politics is an important predictor of the rejection of global warming, but not necessarily of the rejection of evolution. Religion is a strong predictor of rejection of human evolution, but it's not a strong predictor of rejection of global warming. So here we are again. Information alone, just correcting people's misunderstandings, just having more knowledge, is necessary but not sufficient to change minds. Values, ideology, and identification are important factors in determining whether someone changes their mind about a scientific issue or really any other issue. If changing one mind will cause a conflict with values, ideology, or identification, empirical factual evidence is going to have an uphill climb. In the case of of evolution, of anti-evolutionists, for a conservative Christian, they believe that the Bible is absolutely true from Genesis to Revelations and that you cannot pick and choose. So if everything in Genesis is not absolutely literally true, how can they believe Revelations? How can they know that there will be a reunion with God at the end times, etc., that they'll be reunited with their uh, loved ones, etc.? If evolution is true, all that goes out the window, which is what they believe. That is only one Christian position, obviously. But it's one that's felt very, very seriously. So clearly, if evolution is right, they're going to lose big. So you can see that there's a very strong motivation for evolution not to be correct no matter how much you shovel science on top of it. No matter how cogent your explanation of the Cambrian explosion, if they're going to use salvation they're not likely to believe you. Right? And it's the same thing with different examples with global warming. But lest I'm this really very cheerful person who talks about all these depressing things all the time. But I, I don't want to leave you depressed. There People do change their minds, even when issues relate to these very important issues of values, ideology, and group identification. Bob Inglis, former South Carolina Republican congressional representative to Congress, was very dismissive of climate change. Like other Republicans, he thought an inconvenient truth was just garbage and it was nothing but a democratic plot to seize more central government power. This was clearly just liberal nonsense. In the movie Merchants of Doubt, which I encourage anybody to see if they haven't seen it already or read the book and see the movie, he relates how he accompanied a group of scientists and other politicians to Antarctica, where he... uh, was blown away by the ice core evidence, by looking at the melting glaciers, the before and after photographs, and so forth. Uh, It was just a stunning experience for him to actually see the evidence of climate change. He also reported in interviews that his family also pushed him to accept climate change. Quote, My oldest was voting for the first time when I ran again in 2004, and he said, Dad, I'll vote for you, but you're gonna have to clean up your act on the environment. And so I had this new constituency, my son, my four daughters, my wife, all feeling the same way. By the way, unfortunately, uh, uh, Bob English was primaried in 2012 and lost his seat, but there you go. Michael Shermer, president of the Skeptic Society, editor of the Skeptic magazine, also claims a turnaround in his opinion about climate change. In a column he wrote for Scientific American, he writes that he rejected global warming because basically he's got a burr under his saddle about environmentalism. He's never liked environmentalists, so there's just another bunch of crazy environmentalists, so he was rejecting that. He writes in, in another essay in 2008, later that month, I attended a TED conference where former Vice President Al Gore delivered the single finest summation of the evidence for global warming I'd ever heard, based on an inconvenient truth. Because we are primates with such visually dominant sensory systems, we need to see the evidence to believe it. And the striking visuals of countless graphs and charts, and especially the before and after photographs showing the disappearance of glaciers around the world, shocked me viscerally, and knocked me out of my skepticism, Richard Sizek is the former vice president of governmental Affairs for the National Association of evangelicals he 's described himself he 's a pro bush conservative by his own words in an interview in two thousand and five he said quote, "I had a conversion experience on the climate issue, not unlike my conversion to christ. I was at a conference in Oxford where Sir John Houghton, an evangelical scientist, was presenting evidence of shrinking ice caps, temperatures tracked for millennia through ice core data, increasing hurricane intensity, drought patterns, and so on, I realized all at once, with sudden awe, that climate change is a phenomenon of truly biblical proportions. All three of these individuals changed his mind, saying that the facts— Empirical evidence and science made them finally accept climate change. Yet if you remember the stories of how this change came about, each of them experienced some emotional concomitant of this change in view. Inglis was under pressure from his family to be more environmentally friendly, plus he describes being emotionally blown away by his Antarctic experience. Schirmer talks about being viscerally shocked by a presentation on climate change. And I suspect he also had a tribal conflict because his science tribe was pulling in one direction, his libertarian tribe was pulling him in another direction, and he felt this conflict as well. That's my own hypothesis. Sizek talks about the awe he felt in realizing the seriousness of global warming and the consequences of which appealed to his theological and ideological values. Each of these men indeed became aware of scientific evidence for global warming, but each of them also had a profound emotional experience as part of this change. We human beings are not just logical and rational. We are creatures with emotions and beliefs that are critical in shaping us as the human beings that we are. What about creationists? Do they ever change their minds? Well, first consider that within Christianity, there are a lot of different views about evolution. From the most strict flat earthers through geocentrists to young earthers to old earthers to theistic evolutionists, the farther down the creation evolution continuum you go, the more science is accepted. Now, of course, the best-kept secret in this whole controversy is that Catholics and mainstream Protestants accept evolution as the way God did it. This is not a problem for the vast majority of American, of, of Christians, uh, internationally especially. Now, very few Christians are flat-earthers or geocentrists, so the bulk of the anti-evolution movement comes from young-earth creationists and old-earth creationists. It is among these conservative Christians that you find the problems. Liberal Christians look at science differently. I love this Episcopal ad from the 1970s, uh, which illustrates how liberal Christians look at science To these Christians, religion is about other things than explaining the natural world. But even conservative Christians are not universally against evolution. The two best known evangelical institutions promoting science are the American Scientific Affiliation and BioLogos Foundation. ASA has been around since the 1940s. In order to be a member of ASA, you have to be an evangelical Christian, and you also have to have a graduate degree in science. Uh, BioLogos Foundation was launched more recently in 2009. It's an online uh, source uh, originally founded by Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, and a group of his supporters. There is a fairly large and growing literature of evangelical Christians reaching out to their fellows with the message that one can be an evangelical and a scientist and also accept evolution. Some of these are very famous scientists, like Francis Collins, others are not known outside of the evangelical community. Some of the most interesting stories are those of young Earth creationists who have converted, if you will, to evolution. I have read a number of these case studies and I know a number of these people personally, and I have summarized some themes from this literature, which uh, I think are probably valid. The process of abandoning the dichotomous creation or evolution uh, view resulted in a variety of outcomes for these scientists, from some of them just simply left, left Christianity in toto; uh, others adopted a more liberal form of Christianity, and some maintained their uh, evangelical theology, but uh, dispensed with the biblical literalism. More than one of these scientists started studying evolution with the goal of refuting it, This is why they went to graduate school. They were going to learn about evolution so that they could fight it. And what they found is that the scientific data was ultimately persuasive. Very many of them expressed an intellectual disdain for their former Young Earth views. They were affronted when they discovered how shoddy the science of creation science actually was. And also the lack of self-correction among the Young Earth creationists. And of course... Self-correction is a hallmark of how real science is done. For many, the acceptance of evolution was allowed, if you will, because they started studying the Bible in a seminary or a graduate course, and they learned that the Bible had a history. They learned that the Bible was had an evolution. It was based on several manuscripts. There were many authors of the Bible. The Bible had a history and there were parts of it that were contradictory. And the exposure to biblical scholarship in combination with, uh, well, the exposure to biblical scholarship for many of these scientists resulted in them being able to look more dispassionately at the science of evolution. Unfortunately, many found themselves shunned or in other ways mistreated by their former evangelical brethren once they identified as having rejected young earth creationists. But the overwhelming theme in virtually all of these personal journeys was how encountering the strength of the data and theory supporting evolution forced them to eventually relent and abandon their young earth views. For these scientists, the science counted and counted a lot. Yet at the same time, most of the people who have written of their conversions to evolution recall an emotional or ideological concomitant of the shift, even those who attribute the shift, the change primarily to their recognition of the power of science. Just to take three of the um, case studies that I looked at for this talk, uh, Dennis Lamoureux reports his shock at discovering in his PhD studies in evolutionary biology that his understanding of evolution, which had been derived from young Earth creationist literature, was just wrong, just totally, totally wrong. There were transitional fossils. Uh, There was a process and mechanism of evolution. Evolution was not a result of chance and randomness and so on and so forth. Glenn Morton was similarly shocked when he presented Evidence from, he, he's a petroleum geologist, and he presented evidence from um, geology that the world had to be old, it could not be young, and he was totally shunned and rejected by the young earth creationists. Emily Willoughby reports that the painful death from cancer of her 19 year old brother, whom she loved dearly, shook her confidence in the truth of Christianity generally, and the young earth creationist arguments began to make less sense as she studied the actual science. Now, more accounts of conversions of this sort would be necessary in order to test my generalizations and see if they can be extended. But for our purposes this afternoon, do note that these were all, the, the several cases that I studied, were all scientists who believed that the power of evolutionary science, the power of geology, the power of astronomy and physics, the power of science changed their orientation from anti-evolution, young earth creationism, to an acceptance of evolution. But remember, everyone also had some sort of an emotional or values-related experience along with it. It's very difficult to find examples of somebody for whom just the science was persuasive. There was always an emotional uh, interaction. Now, not everybody who is exposed to the science has a conversion experience like this. Kurt Wise is a well-known young earth creationist. He studied at Harvard under Stephen Jay Gould uh, many decades ago. This is a guy who knows the science, Okay. Um, Kurt will go to creationist conferences. And when uh, a creationist will make a comment about the geological column or radioisotopic dating or something, Kurt will say, no, that's wrong. That's not what they say doesn't make him a lot of fans among some of his fellow young earth creationists but you know this is a guy who in my opinion has a lot of integrity when it comes to the science so this is a guy who knows the science right but he has also been quoted as saying that if it weren't for his religious beliefs if he had only the scientific evidence he would accept evolution so clearly And I don't bring up Kurt Weiss because I want to be depressing, but to remind us that knowledge resistance is a complicated subject with much variation in its manifestations from individual to individual and even among trained scientists who are potentially the most inclined to respond to scientific data. So what do we do about this? Well, the communications research people have suggested that changing minds require effective messages. And of course, what is effective in one context will be different than what's effective in another. I was doing a radio show up in Canada a couple of years ago, and the little community where we were broadcasting from, it had an anti-vaccination outbreak, and everybody was, oh my God, people aren't vaccinating their kids. So... Uh, the the uh, interviewer was was asking me about the anti-vaccination movement and and we were talking in general about the importance of you know science and vaccinations work and all of this and he said and she said yes and it's very important that a high percentage of people in the community get vaccinated so that, um, so that everybody will be, or sorry, it's very important that a high percentage of people in the community get vaccinated because then the people who can't get vaccinated, like very young children or people who have immune system problems, they'll be protected as well. And I just had to kind of chuckle and say, okay, that's going to work in Canada maybe. Herd immunity is going to be maybe persuasive in Canada, but I'm not sure how persuasive it is in the United States. But there's where you have to consider, consider the message being effective for the audience in which you're dealing as well. An example of very effective messaging that some of us will remember was the California anti-smoking campaign of the 1990s to the early 2000s. Simple effective messages... Tobacco industry lies, nicotine is addictive, secondhand smoke kills. The percentage of Californians who smoke plummeted during that decade. Ed Mayback at the George Mason Center for Climate Change Communication stresses simplicity when communicating the importance of climate change. Their research showed that people who believe it's happening, it's real, it's us, it's bad, and it's solvable are more likely to take action. But again, what kind of message comes out is also important. If you're going to take that fourth bullet that it's bad, well, stress it's bad for humans because that's more effective than saying it's bad for polar bears. We're much more concerned about how things affect us. Importantly, the message has to come from a trusted messenger, and we most trust people who are like ourselves. People who are like ourselves speak the same language, not literally. Um, they have the same values. They share the same ideologies. They're much more likely to be listened to. A friend of mine was, uh, was talking about uh, GMOs with um, uh, a, an anti-GMO person. And they were, they were just not getting anywhere. They were just totally button heads. And finally, his, his opponent said, You libertarians are all alike. And he said, Libertarian? I'm a socialist he said the tone of the conversation switched 180 degrees. My friend said, because I was like him, maybe I was saying something that should be listened to. Evangelical Christians who accept evolution like Dennis Lamoureux and Glenn Morton and pretty much anybody from BioLogos are very important messengers to the evangelical Christian community about evolution. Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist who's also an evangelical Christian. As a fellow evangelical and a scientist, she's in a very unique position to be a trusted messenger to those evangelicals who do reject climate change. The trusted messenger has to have the right message, and her message to her fellow evangelicals stresses a theology called creation care and also the values expressed in social gospel theology, which is important to many evangelicals. Bob Inglis can be a trusted messenger to Republicans, Michael Shermer to Libertarians, Richard Sizek to Evangelicals. Finally, communication specialists tell us that messages need to be repeated often before they are absorbed. I often would tell my colleagues at NCSE that you're never going to change anybody's mind in one pass. I mean, my colleagues would go out, they'd give talks at other um, uh, colleges and universities, I'd give up. We do drive-by science, right? You know, we're there for an hour and we're gone, okay? Uh, the best you can hope for is that some of the ideas that you put out may just crack the door open a little bit to somebody who opposes your ideas. Maybe the next time they hear that same series of ideas, the door will be cracked open a little wider. So you never, you never do it in one pass. Effective messages from a trusted messenger repeated often. Repetition, of course, can be good or bad. NPR released a poll in 2017 reporting that 55 percent of American whites believe that whites are discriminated against. May I remind you that the survey data and the actual empirical evidence that we have does not support the idea that minorities are getting all the jobs? Um, I think this is a message that is repeated often. No collusion. So what does resistance tell us? Sorry, what does research tell us about knowledge resistance? Well, it's partly the ideas themselves. You can change your mind more easily about how photosynthesis works or that we use 10 percent of our brain, because those ideas don't challenge our ideologies, values, or identification with our social groups. We know people are reluctant to change their minds for many reasons, and it's not stupidity, ignorance, or anti uh, or rejection of science. It's not that people ignore the science; they like science. they just don't like this science there is evidence that information can change minds it's not all the backfire effect and we can change our ideas and opinions even about issues that are very important to us it's just that ideology values and how people identify with others comes first before the science can be listened to I would sometimes use the uh, the uh, analogy metaphor Uh, you got to get the fingers out of the ears before they can even hear the science. So if if a conservative Christian believes that they're going to lose salvation, if evolution is true, it's going to be really hard to get the fingers out of those ears. Finally, we need to consider communication strategies that have been shown to work to do a better job. Here's my low-tech suggestion. People need to talk to one another. We need to build up relationships of trust, which requires mutual respect. Trusted messengers are listened to. The most trusted are people from the same tribe. But even if you're from a different tribe, you can build a trustful relationship with someone who disagrees with you, who has different opinions. I'm a humanist, but I have built up good relationships with evangelical, with many evangelical Christians over the years. I think I have built a relationship of trust with many evangelical Christians because I treat them with respect, I listen to their concerns, they treat me with respect, they listen to my concerns. And you know, we can find the areas where we agree. And if you can find some areas where you can agree, then you can work out to the areas that you disagree, and then you can move those pieces around a little bit. If you can establish trustful relationships then there's a possibility that you can move forward. You can get the fingers out of the ears. And I personally believe that if you get the fingers out of the ears, the science has a really good chance of being listened to because the facts and conclusions of science can be persuasive once values, ideologies, and group identification aren't the most important issues keeping the fingers in the ears. And because these aren't easy problems to solve, let me direct you to the National Center for Science Education for further information. Please go to ncse.com and you'll find much more information on the controversies over teaching evolution and climate change and some ideas of what you can do to help. And again, I am just so honored to be a Hitchcock lecturer and thank you very much for coming out to hear me.
1: It strikes me that the part, part of the problem with that 40% may be that they, they think there's no basis for morality without religion. And I wonder whether, in terms of ignorance, what people are ignorant about is not so much the general facts of evolution, but the fact that there is an evolutionary explanation for morality – That's valid and that, you know, we as a species, there's a reason for morality within our species for the success of the species, which also has to do with global warming, by the way, how moral you are about your your next generations. But I wonder if much effort has been made with the evangelicals. They cling to their religion, so to speak, it seems to me, because they think they're going to lose their whole value system if they don't have it.
2: Uh, there, there are two reasons why, uh, even why conservative Christians reject evolution. One that I did talk about is the loss of salvation. The second one is the point you make. They believe that good behavior, ethical and moral behavior, um, comes; those directives come from God. Um, from Jesus in the Bible, and if you don't have those um, uh, directives, then uh, you you won't be a good. Our children will grow up to be wild people, yeah. and this is a very you know a very serious and 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 uh, sincere belief that they have. Um, I have found uh, when I have spoken to evangelical Christians on this issue, and, and I'm a humanist, I'm not a believer in God, and um, you know we'll, we'll talk a little bit, and I'll say. Well, you know, there, there, are, there are non-theistic ethical systems, and that comes as a real surprise, because they don't know that. In this case, this could be a matter of ignorance, you know? Uh, and, and this makes them stop because they've never really thought that there could be other systems of morality other than those that were divinely bestowed. So it's a possibility. Well, and then uh, your, your point, I think, also in kids. continuing was that uh, there have been suggestions from the evolutionary literature for natural explanations for the development of ethical and moral systems. However those explanations tell you that we develop ethical and moral systems as part of um, social behavior, group cohesion, etc., etc. It doesn't tell you specifically that you should marry your cross-cousin rather than your parallel cousin, (laughs) okay? Uh, So (laughs) there there still is a lot of room for uh, philosophical and and, uh, traditional and religious explanations for how one should behave, even if uh, evolutionary biology can give us some suggestions for why these views are adaptive. It still doesn't actually replace the views that people consider important. But there is also scientific
1: but, evidence that we're not just intrinsically selfish, horrible animals that need something on well, top We, of we have to, to
2: learn everything. Well. <laughs> we need to go under the next speaker. Thank you for your question.
3: Um, one thing that they talk about is trying to change the narrative. So what would you recommend in trying to replace someone's narrative on evolution or Or whatnot. What what kind of examples would you give to someone that they want to uh, start that discussion about changing their narrative?
2: You mean if you're dealing with somebody who's an anti evolutionist? Yes. Okay. Well, my recommendation to, you know, like I say, talk to each other, Um, but mostly listen. Um, My first recommendation is if you are. Uh, dealing with somebody whose views on a scientific issue like evolution or climate or whatever are very different from yours, and we assume that your view is actually supported by science, although you may have crazy views, but we'll assume that your views count. Um, What you need to do is find what that person's views are and not assume that you understand what they are. And then probe, uh, question, listen further... Why does this person hold the beliefs that they do? It may be ignorance, in which case, you know, you might direct them to a trusted source that would give them that information. Uh, I send a lot of people to the uh, American Scientific Affiliation website because these are evangelical Christians who will tell you why radiometric dating is actually valid. Okay. And if I tell them radiometric da- dating is valid, they're not going to believe it nearly as much as if a trusted messenger delivers that same thing. So I think you really have to know where the person you're uh, talking to, where the, per- where the person you're dealing with is coming from and why they hold the views they do. Um, I have learned some things about anti-vaccination uh, parents. And these parents are are really really scared about something bad happening to their kids, and you know yeah you have to change that narrative, uh, you have to um, assuage those concerns, but find out you know listen more carefully and find out why uh, why this person feels this way. It may be anecdotal. It may be because their you know their cousin's brother-in-law's uh, niece um, had a child who got autism. Uh, two weeks after getting a, a shot, and so that is really dramatic. There are ways of dealing with stuff like that, but you, you, know, you need to listen a lot, and you need to think about what people say and treat them respectfully. Anyway, thank, thank you, you for your question.
1: Thank you for everything. You mentioned um, assuaging the fears, and you mentioned uh, uh, not depressing us, have you studied the science of anxiety and depression? And in particular, this, the science of cognitive behavior therapy basically is the science of humans exaggerating threats and exa- exaggerating um, their confidence. Um, it seems I think
2: uh, I, I do I, I believe I understand the field that you 're discussing and it 's a very important field. It is, however, a little bit past the the pay scale, so to speak of of what NCse does and what, what what I have done. I think that is a much more um, um, a much more clinical approach. I think that the people The level upon which I'm dealing this, I I, I don't think is quite relevant to your point. But it is an important field. It definitely is. So thank you.
3: Uh, I have a somewhat different perspective on people's support for science. Uh, Science is very reductionistic. And we have this ideology that essentially says if you understand fundamental particles, you understand the whole universe. Now, of course, uh, there are plenty of scientists who, who don't buy into this dogma. But I think that it leads to a sense among people, oh, well, yeah, reductionist science is great. I mean, over the last several centuries, it's given us all this great technology and cures and all that, but it's just covering part of the picture. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... That may explain part of this. That uh, people say, "Oh well, we're dealing in, a, in say, a holistic realm, which the fundamentalists or the reductionist scientists just want to, don't want to deal with, mm-hmm. and which a lot of uh, the primary spokesmen downgrade. I mean, they tend to be look down on people who take a holistic view. They look down on people who believe in God, and, and they have a, essentially they have a whole set of dogmas of their own."
2: Well. I, I, speaking as a biologist, I, I can't say that shoe fits because you know, we, we deal with a lot of um, integrative phenomena, shall we say. But the... Um, uh, thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, unfortunately, we, um, we don't have a whole lot more time, so maybe these will be the last two questions. Uh, I'm
0: wondering if you
3: could
1: comment on the role of compulsion... In, in this situation. You've ta- talked very eloquently about persuasion and education.
0: Kitzmiller, I think, is more an example of compulsion uh, or trying
3: yeah, to.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and I'm not sure we have the freedom to persuade in a long-term process about global warming. It seems like the fate of the earth and our species hangs in the balance
1: and
2: well I don't know about you but I live in the United States and it's a democracy and I can't compel people to agree with me however much better off they would be (laughs) I must say the Kitzmiller case going going to trial uh, is actually a very good a very good example of of, I think your point Um, Everybody remembers uh, Kitzmiller versus Dover. They remember the, we at NCSE, there's some of my NCSE colleagues in the audience, and they remember that year of preparation for that six weeks of trial and how totally exhausting it was for all of us. And you remember the cross examinations and the judge's decision and all this kind of stuff, all of which was very complicated. But preceding that, for a year and a half, we and the uh, citizens in the city of Dover worked. We, we supported them. We provided them information. They would go every single school board meeting and try to persuade the school board to not, you know, compromise the teaching of evolution. Uh, the policy was only the last step in about a year and a half of really bad decisions on the part of the school board. The only reason Kitzmiller versus Dover went to trial is because that was the only recourse. You don't go to trial unless you absolutely have to. That's the last thing you want to do. It's exhausting, it's divisive, and you may lose, but sometimes you have to do it. But if you can persuade, you're a whole lot better off. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Thank you, Dr. Scott. It's a pleasure to hear you. As a fundraiser, the last three organizations that I have been working to build hope for are Catholic Charities the Center for Climate Protection, and the Leaky Foundation. <laughs> I believe that covers religion, evolution, <laughs> and, and climate change. I'm curious, and I, I agree with you, and I wanna share it's, it's uh, I've impacted change by starting personal conversations, and you can start one tonight with a relative on the phone. It yeah. works. Yeah. And I will just ask what gives you hope, why do you still recycle? <laughs> well, it, it's, it's very, I mean, the, the question, there are two questions that I got asked when I was director of NCSE. The most common question was from creationists, which was, if man evolved from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? They were convinced that would, I'd go, oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> the, second, the second most common question that I got was from people on my side of the issue which was how do you put up with these people why don't they just drive you totally nuts and that's kind of the same <laughs> vein of your last question pathological optimism thank you for coming to hear me